brought to you by the Cannabis Bee Network. Here is the Cannabis Bee News with your host, Scott Jacobs. Hello, listeners. How's it going today? This is episode CBN 073-326-2014. Let's roll into article number one. Oregon Medical Marijuana Shops opening this week with state approval. Take it away. Oregon Medical Marijuana Shops opening this week with state approval. Source, the Oregonian. Medical marijuana shops in Oregon are opening their doors with state approval for the first time this week, but at least one may not be in business very long. The Relief Center, a dispensary located just outside Hermiston city limits, opened its doors Tuesday for the first time since February 28th. Owner Jim Ruha said he shut the store down when the state's dispensary law went into effect March 1st and waited for the state to approve his facility registration. The shop, and many like it around the state, had previously existed in a sort of legal gray area, neither explicitly authorized nor banned under state law. Relief's state certificate came in the mail Monday afternoon, he said, and now hangs on the shop's wall. But the store could be shuttered again soon, this time for more than a year, if the Umatilla County Commission enacts a moratorium on dispensaries when it meets next week. How do I look my patients in the eye and say, there's nothing I can do for you, Ruha said. It's a terrible feeling. George Murdoch, vice chairman of the Umatilla County Board of Commissioners, said the commission will consider the issue at its April 2nd meeting, but, whatever way we go, it's going to be painful. Murdoch said it's the commissioner's job to uphold the law, but a conflict between the federal prohibition on marijuana and the state's law allowing registered facilities to sell the drug creates a huge conundrum for them. He said he didn't think the issues should be decided at the county level, but state law leaves it up to them. That law is SB 1531, which Governor John Kitzhaber signed last week, days before the state began issuing medical marijuana facility licenses on Friday. It gives cities and counties until May 1st to block medical marijuana stores from setting up shop within their borders for up to a year. As many as a dozen communities already have passed or are considering ordinances that would do just that. For at least six of the eight dispensaries the state approved last week, three in Portland and one each in Salem, Eugene and Bend, the moratoriums may not be a problem. They face another kind of uncertainty stemming from SB 1531. The law also directs the Oregon Health Authority to set rules requiring pot products to be packaged in child-proof containers and prohibiting marijuana products that could be attractive to children. The agency last week proposed rules prohibiting dispensaries from selling nearly all pot-infused edibles, such as hash brownies and other sweet treats. Those products make up about 15% of dispensary sales, store owners say, and help patients who cannot smoke and those who need a longer-lasting dose than other forms of the drug can provide. Marijuana-infused cakes and cookies are almost a requirement for James Erickson's wife. She suffers from chronic nausea and cannot smoke or inhale the drug. They tried making their own edibles, he said, but it was a nightmare, so now they buy them. The rule banning the sweets could change later this week before it goes into effect, the agency said. For now, some dispensary owners are pulling pot-laced treats from their shelves and putting future orders on hold. Store owners say compliance is their priority, even as local ordinances and rules are subject to change. As for Ruha, he said he'll make a last-ditch effort to appeal to the county commissioners, then hope for the best. Article number two, Utah families celebrate passage of cannabis, Charlie's Law. Take it away. 
Utah families celebrate passage of cannabis Charlie's Law. By Kirsten Stewart. Source, the Salt Lake Tribune. Kyle Sintz of South Jordan shares a light moment with his son Isaac, 7, as they wait for Governor Gary R. Herbert to sign a ceremonial version of HB 105 to legalize the use of non-intoxicating cannabis oil by Utahns with untreatable epilepsy. Families gathered in the Gold Room at the Utah Capitol on Tuesday, March 25, 2014, for the signing. HB 105, now called Charlie's Law, will go into effect on July 1st. Ceremonial signing logistics are months from being worked out. University of Utah hopes to study effectiveness of cannabis treatments. Utah's Hemp Supplement Bill, better known as Charlie's Law, is a technical piece of legislation, packed with a lot of legalese, said sponsor Republican Gage Furrer at the governor's ceremonial signing of the law on Tuesday. But it's a symbol of compassion for parents who have exhausted all medical remedies for their children, and a promise of hope for a better future, he said. And number one it's about trust, Furrer said. The state of Utah is willing to trust the parents of this state in making the decisions they feel are right for their children's health. HB 105 gives Utahns with epilepsy trial access to a non-intoxicating, seizure-stopping cannabis oil. But it doesn't take effect until July 1, 2014, and until then, Utahns can't legally possess cannabis oil. And obtaining it after that date will still risk violating federal law and require jumping through a set of still vaguely defined hoops. Currently, Patients will need to travel to states where medical marijuana is legal and import cannabis oil themselves. Doing so remains technically a violation of federal law. That hasn't stopped states from enacting their own marijuana laws. Utah Governor Gary Herbert signed HB 105 last week. At Tuesday's ceremonial signing at the Capitol he applauded families for being the driving force behind a bill that many surmised had no chance of passaging that underwent nine revisions. Herbert initially had quality control and safety concerns, but said, I'm satisfied that we have a bill that is where it needs to be. At the event Tuesday were grassroots organizers of Hope for Children with Epilepsy H4CE, wearing purple in honor of March 26, which is Epilepsy Awareness Day. The parents of the bill's namesake, Charlie Nelson, one of 50 Utah children on a Colorado waiting list for non-intoxicating cannabis oil, were there. The six-year-old West Jordan girl died two weekends ago, days after being honored by the legislature. Still numb and processing her daughter's death, Katrina Nelson lamented that Charlie couldn't be here with us today. But she said, I'm excited to see this work out for so many other families. It will be months before the Utah Department of Health fine-tunes the process for families to apply for a hemp supplement registration card. The law requires families to first obtain a letter of recommendation from their neurologist, and hospitals are bracing for an influx of calls from families eager to get the ball rolling. We are committed to working with these families. We want to be their partner in this journey, said Edward Clark, pediatrics chairman at University of Utah Healthcare and chief medical officer at Intermountain Healthcare's primary children's hospital. But until the health department issues rules, hospitals can provide much guidance to patients. Neurologists are in short supply and high demand in Utah and most of those specializing in untreatable epilepsy work at the U and at primary children's. It's unclear how many adults and children in Utah are candidates for cannabis oil, but most probably already have records on file at these hospitals, said Clark. He has assigned a task force to create a pipeline to speed requests for recommendation letters. The U will likely sponsor a hotline where patients can register for information, he said. Some patients may require additional testing and some may not, he said. I've asked our epileptologists to define what they need. There are people working on this every day trying to get these pieces assembled. The U. 
S. Doctors hope to study cannabis oil and chart patients progress on it. On a parallel track they have also applied to run an investigational trial of a pharmaceutical-grade cannabis extract for use in children with a severe form of epilepsy called Dravet syndrome. The drug, Hepidiolex, is a liquid, purified form of cannabidiol CBD, a non-psychoactive component of marijuana, made by British drug maker GW Pharmaceuticals. The drug, Hepidiolex, is a liquid, purified form of cannabidiol CBD, a non-psychoactive component of marijuana made by British drug maker GW Pharmaceuticals. Clark couldn't say when the trial might start or how many patients might be eligible. It may be possible to design a study to avoid having to give placebos to children, a common concern of parents, he said. It could be an open-label trial. All this, however, hinges on the availability of funding and approval by GW and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and Drug Enforcement Administration, Clark said. Additionally, the EU has applied to the National Institutes of Health to become part of a national undiagnosed disease network. Academic medical centers handpicked to provide answers to patients with rare, mysterious conditions that elude diagnosis. Uncontrolled seizures are often the byproduct of these so-called orphan diseases. All these moving parts present challenges for families trying to do best by their children. But Jennifer May, the Utah County mother of a boy with Dravet syndrome and co-founder of H4CE, says she's thrilled to have choices. No child responds to the same treatment. We need every option available, she said. There are about 45 anti-epileptic drugs on the market and most children try 20 or more before finding a few that work, or exhausting all medical remedies, she said. Some may decide to sign up for the Epidiolex trial first, since the drug's maker may not accept patients taking artisanal oils made by marijuana growers, May said. But others, like Annette Morgan, president of the Epilepsy Association of Utah, have more comfort with artisanal oils that have been documented to work in two observational trials of 180 children, and shown to have few side effects. Early results of Epidiolexis trials are not publicly available, she said. Still, she is eager for more testing of more products. I want that quality control, she said. Any validation we can have and any protection we can ensure for our children, great. Article number 3, Big Pot Rising the marijuana industry's first full-time lobbyist makes rounds on Capitol Hill. Take it away. Big Pot Rising, the marijuana industry's first full-time lobbyist makes rounds on Capitol Hill. By Ben Terrace. Source, Washington Post. It took Michael Correa more than a week after getting his new job to tell his parents he was a marijuana lobbyist. I just got a job lobbying for a small business trade association that focuses on taxes and banking issues. He told them four months ago after being hired by the National Cannabis Industry Association. He wasn't lying, but for a guy who had been working for Republicans and conservative organizations for the better part of 16 years, telling his mom and dad about representing Big Pot wasn't exactly high on his list. It wasn't the first time he neglected to tell his parents about marijuana in his life. He smoked it about a dozen times as a teenager before deciding that all it did was make him hungry and tired. That's news to me, says his mother, Joanne noting that she counseled all three of her children against the dangers of drugs. If he ever smoked it, I don't think we were ever aware of it. But if he did, he got past it, obviously. Now he doesn't even drink coffee. Correa, 44, may not have intended to tell his parents about his past marijuana use, but he didn't plan on hiding the details of his new job forever. Eventually, Correa let them know he was the first full-time lobbyist on Capitol Hill for the NCIA essentially the Chamber of Commerce for Marijuana. It was true that he was focusing on small businesses. 
they just happened to have names such as Weedmips, Chronic Clinic and Hayes City. When he told us, it never entered our minds, good grief that's illegal, immoral or anything, Joanne says. He's not going to do anything that's not all right. We're in Red Bly proud. Standing at six foot dash four with the remnants of a California tan, a full head of hair, a red power tie and a black overcoat, Korea, a guy who never saw the inside of a principal's office growing up, is the new face of marijuana in Washington. Gone are the culture warriors, the flyers of freak flags. They're not needed here anymore. In 1969, a Gallup poll found that only 12% of the country supported the legalization of marijuana. Last year, that number was 58%. The battle over whether marijuana is a moral turpitude is over. It has been replaced by a series of smaller, professional fights, where it should be legalized, how it should be taxed and how it must be regulated. But add up all those little skirmishes and what you have is a fight for the soul of the marijuana movement. I think what we're seeing now is the transition from the movement to the lobby, says Mark Kleiman, a UCLA professor who moonlights as Washington State's drug czar. The hippies are being pushed aside by the suits. That's too bad, because the interest of the hippies has been consistent with the public view, and the interest of the suits is opposed. That's one way to look at it. The other is that the movement has grown up. It's really a legitimate and respected force now, says Republican Jared Polis D. Coldo one of the leading voices on marijuana legalization in the House. It's not just true believer activists running around, getting off message. The bottom line. It would be impossible to mistake Karenia for a true believer. Even today he won't say whether he supports the legalization of marijuana. Luckily, I don't have to get into that argument or discussion, he says. Karenia is a hired gun, someone who understands how things get done in Washington more than he cares about whether people get high. Born into a family of Democrats, Correa found a different political identity when he went to the University of California as San Diego. After college, he spent nine years working as a Republican staffer on the House Committee on Natural Resources before getting a job leading outreach to Capitol Hill in the White House as the Director of Federal Affairs for the American Legislative Exchange Council, an organization that helps draft conservative legislation with financial support from the Quach brothers. Among other things, ALEC has helped write tough sentencing laws targeting drug users. Though Correa was a generalist at ALEC he worked on issues such as internet taxation and also helped maintain alumni relations he says he had no dealings with its drug policy work. He thus felt no moral qualms about applying for a job with NCIA last year. If you take out the word marijuana, Correa's job sounds incredibly boring. His main job is to persuade lawmakers to do two things, change the tax code to lessen the burden on entrepreneurs and give these small businesses access to banks. It comes across as small board to some marijuana activists. We want to switch out the engine, and they just want to make a quarter turn on a screw on the carburetor, says Alan St. Pierre, head of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, or NORML. Myself, I've always been much more comfortable advocating for civil rights rather than someone's bottom line. St. Pierre smiles when he says this. A self-described polemist, he's always looking for a fight, but he also knows the major battle has been won. For proof, St. Pierre picks up a receipt for $73.01 Super Lemon Haze, $22.16. Cool Aid Kush, $22.16. Exit Jar, $0.82. Wanna Rolls, $14.77. Tax, $13.10. A legal purchase from Terrapin Care Station in Boulder, Colo. Look around the organization's office and it's easy to tell that, for N or ML, it's always been about the weed. 
There's a vintage Acapulco Rolling Papers advertisement, a fake potted marijuana plant, a scale with a pot leaf on it, and an old Reefer Madness movie poster. But don't be fooled, this paraphernalia is no longer a demarcation of the counterculture. Pot is becoming square. I pick up the Wall Street Journal, Barons and Forbes, St. Pierre says, and they've written more about marijuana in the last 18 months than the prior 24 years I've been here. And they are writing about it as pure capitalism. New set of challenges. NORML has come a long way since Keith's troop founded the organization with $5,000 inches seed money from Playboy in 1970. Stroop, who currently works as legal counsel for NORML, says it's a luxury to nitpick over issues such as whether marijuana needs to be stored in a locked box. And yet, the shift from movement to industry does come with its problems. People in the industry are primarily interested in getting rich, says Stroop, whose long white hair and prominent cheekbones make him look like a composer from the 1600s. When we were a distance off, you see people as either being for legalization or opposed to it. Those were the sides. Now, it's not that simple. Now there are folks such as Kleiman, the Washington State drug czar, who worry that big pop could start to look like big tobacco. There are medical marijuana groups that worry that recreational usage could cut into their market share. And there are members of Congress who might want to see change but have other forces to deal with. I've seen plenty of movement among our constituency, says Republican Dana Rarabakar R. Caliph, who supports a state's right to legalize marijuana. It's the elected Republicans who are still cowering, thinking that if they would support any type of legalization, they would face negative ads portraying them as pro-drug cartel. Congress tends to lag behind public opinion, but it usually catches up. And in this way, Korea has one of the most exciting jobs in lobbying. I used to be able to cycle through my Rolodex in a couple of days, says the Marijuana Policy Project's Dan Riffle, the other full-time lobbyist working on marijuana issues on the Hill. Only a couple of offices were willing to meet. Now it's fair play in every office. Karenya has been on the job for only four months, but he already knows this to be true. With his more than a dozen years working on the Hill, there are plenty of familiar faces. But no, his Republican colleagues don't avert their eyes when they see the newest pot lobbyist coming their way. After saying congratulations on the new job, he says, the first thing they asked me is if I have any samples. Article number 4. Australia has no reason to disallow medical cannabis use. Take it away. Australia has no reason to disallow medical cannabis use. By Alex Wodek and Lawrence Mather. Source, The Conversation. International acceptance of medicinal cannabis is growing because it can provide relief for people who can't be sufficiently helped with current pharmaceutical drugs. But despite growing evidence of its usefulness in certain situations, medical use of cannabis remains illegal in Australia. In the last week, the U.S. state of Utah has made the medical use of cannabis legal and Alabama is awaiting gubernatorial approval to do the same. This means more than 20 states in the U.S. now permit the medical use of cannabis, but such benign use remains not only unattainable but illegal in Australia. Earlier this month, for instance, a 59-year-old South Australian man with leukemia was sentenced to two years in jail for cultivating cannabis. He'd previously been caught growing the plant to help his wife endure the side effects of chemotherapy for her lymphoma. A newspaper report of the case had a poll about whether cultivating medicinal cannabis should be allowed, and 96% of respondents agreed. Indeed, community support for medicinal cannabis has been strong for a while. A 2010 survey conducted for the Commonwealth Department of Health found 69% of respondents supported medicinal cannabis use, and 74% supported having clinical trials. These results have changed little between 2004 and 2010. 
empty support. Medicinal cannabis use was lawful in Australia until the 1950s, but cannabis cultivation and use is now illegal in all Australian jurisdictions for any purpose, even though the international drug treaties to which we are party permit the medical and scientific use of drugs whose recreational use is prohibited. Australians benefit from the medical use of drugs such as morphine, ketamine, cocaine and amphetamine despite their recreational use being prohibited. While there seems no will at present to amend legislation in any jurisdiction required to enable medicinal use of cannabis, this has not always been the case. In 2003, then-NSW Premier Bob Carr said a draft exposure bill would be introduced at the earliest opportunity to provide for a four-year trial of medicinal cannabis use. This trial never took place, despite then-Prime Minister John Howard giving the idea qualified support. The Australian Medical Association expressed support for limited use of medicinal cannabis in 2006. And, more recently, Queensland Premier Campbell Newman has also provided qualified support for the idea. But not one of these statements has made a difference. Nonetheless, an unknown number of Australians with serious health conditions use cannabis medically because their prescribed medications haven't worked. Calls for help to advocates for medicinal cannabis are not infrequent and many callers say they resent being made to feel like criminals. Efficacy and Side Effects For decades, while attempting to sustain the prohibition of recreational cannabis, the U.S. government promoted research into the adverse effects of cannabis while vigorously obstructing research into its possible medical benefits. Only in the last decade has rigorous clinical research been possible. A recent review of research about medicinal cannabis use found 82 randomized control trials had positive results while only 9 were negative. What's more, at least half a dozen prestigious bodies in Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada and the United States have published favorable reviews of the evidence in the last 15 years. The consensus is that cannabis is not a miracle curative drug but it's very useful for relieving distressing symptoms, especially when the most often used drugs have not proved sufficiently effective or safe. Medicinal cannabis is acceptably safe, with side effects that are uncommon, generally mild, and outweighed by major benefits. And, of course, any side effects have to be compared to those of other medications such as opioid analgesics, or the problems of not treating the symptoms in the first place. The risk of becoming dependent on medicinal cannabis is much smaller than many conventional medications let alone for alcohol and tobacco. As with many drugs, a small proportion of patients find the intoxicating effects of cannabis sufficiently unacceptable to not wish to take it, even if it's beneficial for them. Cost and Pharmaceutical Alternative the cost and legal supply of medicinal cannabis remain potential stumbling blocks. It's cheapest to grow cannabis at home but that, as you know, is illegal. And anyway, many seriously ill people are too unwell and frail to grow their own cannabis or to purchase supplies from the black market. Both homegrown and black market cannabis are of uncertain medicinal quality. To assure quality, specially prepared botanical cannabis is provided in some countries on prescription. And patients are encouraged to use a vaporizer which means they will inhale cannabis vapor rather than smoke. The Therapeutics Goods Administration recently approved a product known as Nabiximal's registered name Sativex. This drug contains a controlled mixture of the active ingredients of cannabis and is sprayed on the inside of the mouth. And a 2012 survey of the carers of people using Nabiximal's reported that 72% had observed an overall benefit to the patient from the treatment. While attractive in many respects, Sativex has been approved in Australia only for one condition treating intractable spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis and is expected to cost patients between $500 and $800 a month. This is too expensive for most elderly people who have been sick for years. 
Medicinal use of cannabis is now permitted in more than a dozen countries including Canada, Switzerland, the Netherlands and Israel. All these countries still prohibit recreational cannabis use. There's no reason that Australia can't do the same. Article number 5. Marijuana Ballot Initiative May Motivate Voters. Take it away. Marijuana Ballot Initiatives May Motivate Voters. By Susan Davis. Source, USA Today. Warning. Increased voter turnout could be a political side effect of marijuana. The latest George Washington University Battleground Poll, a national survey of likely voters, reveals that nearly 4 in 10 respondents say they would be much more likely to vote if marijuana legalization issues were on the ballot. An additional 30% say such ballot initiatives would make them somewhat more likely to vote. The numbers are encouraging to Democratic pollster Chelene DeLake, who conducted the survey with GOP pollster Ed Goyas because Democrats historically have a tougher time than Republicans in turning out voters in non-presidential election years. The GWU survey underscored the enthusiasm gap going into 2014 elections. 64% of Republicans say they are extremely likely to vote this year, compared with 57% of Democrats. Among young voters, who are a pillar of the Democratic base, 36% said they are extremely likely to vote. Which is why you can imagine we're very excited about our marijuana numbers in this poll not only for personal consumption to get through this election, but in terms of turnout, Lake whipped. Support for legalizing medical marijuana use has grown steadily with 73% in favor, while a majority, 53%, also backed decriminalizing marijuana possession, according to the survey. What's really interesting and, I think, a totally unwritten story is that everyone talks about marriage equality hitting a tipping point of acceptance. Marijuana is hitting the tipping point. It's really astounding about how fast it's moved, Lake said. The issue is also motivating beyond traditional political lines. For example, in the successful push for a 2012 Colorado ballot initiative to legalize recreational marijuana use, supporters mobilized libertarian-leaning Republicans by running ads on country music radio stations that reached the state's rural areas. Lake says the data show that the most ardent opponents to legalizing medicinal marijuana use are seniors, while suburban moms are reluctant to support the decriminalization of possession. Both groups historically turn out in midterm elections in higher frequency than young adults. So far this year, only two states have approved marijuana ballot initiatives. In Alaska, voters will decide whether to follow Colorado and Washington and regulate and tax marijuana like alcohol, which in effect would legalize recreational usage. The measure appears on the August 19th primary ballot because the state does not allow initiatives on the general election ballot. That ballot will also settle a hotly contested GOP primary for the U.S. Senate. Florida voters in November will decide whether to allow for medicinal marijuana use, which would require a supermajority of voters, 60%, to enact. November's Florida gubernatorial election is likely to be among the most competitive races in the nation this year. In Oregon, the state legislature declined to put the issue on the November ballot but activists are considering a petition effort to circumvent that decision and get a vote on a legalization measure similar to Colorado's on the ballot this fall. More than a dozen other state legislatures are mulling marijuana laws. The Marijuana Policy Project plans to support a number of ballot initiatives to regulate marijuana like alcohol in Arizona, California, Massachusetts, Maine, Montana and Nevada, but those initiatives won't be ready until 2016. Article number 6. Marijuana ruling could overturn thousands of convictions, or dozens. Take it away. Marijuana ruling could overturn thousands of convictions or dozens. By John Ingold. Source, The Denver Post. Cops and Courts. 
anywhere from a few dozen to more than 10,000 people could be eligible to have their old marijuana convictions overturned as the result of a landmark Colorado Court of Appeals ruling that applied marijuana legalization retroactively. Colorado defense attorneys are pouring through previous marijuana cases, looking for former clients who might be eligible for such relief, but much depends on how subsequent courts apply this month's ruling. On the surface, the ruling appears to have little reach, but attorneys say it is possible courts could follow the reasoning of the ruling to overturn every marijuana case in the state in which an adult was convicted of a crime that stopped being illegal when the state's marijuana legalization law went into effect in late 2012. I think there are thousands of people who could potentially have their convictions overturned, said Sean McAllister, an attorney who specializes in marijuana cases and who said he is already working with several clients to see if their previous convictions could be tossed. But, in order for that to be true, Colorado courts will have to adopt an expansive reading of the ruling a scenario prosecutors see as unlikely. I think that's a tortured application of the appeals court's holding, said Tom Raines, executive director of the Colorado District Attorney's Council. The appeals court's decision, released earlier this month, overturned two marijuana convictions for a woman found guilty in 2011 of things that are no longer illegal under state law as a result of Amendment 64. The amendment, which went into effect on December 10, 2012, makes it legal for people 21 and older to possess up to an ounce of marijuana or marijuana concentrate and grow up to six marijuana plants. In the key passage from its ruling, the appeals court found that a defendant is entitled to the benefits of a mandatory legislation that mitigates the penalties for crimes when he files a motion for post-conviction relief. That means anyone who currently has a pending appeal for a pre-amendment 64 conviction or anyone who is still eligible to appeal such a conviction has a good chance of seeing it overturned, McAllister said. The catch, though, is that the window to appeal has closed in most cases where people were convicted of crimes that are now legal. From January through November 2012, for instance, about 4,800 people over 21 years old were charged with petty possession of less than two ounces of marijuana, according to a Denver Post analysis of court data for every county in Colorado except Denver. Only about 900 of those charges resulted in some type of finding of guilt most were dismissed. But for petty convictions, state law allows only a six-month appeal window, which is long closed. Misdemeanors have an 18-month window meaning there is a chance people convicted before Amendment 64 of possessing less than an ounce of marijuana concentrate or growing up to six plants could still be able to appeal. But the Post's analysis found fewer than 100 such cases that could potentially fit within the right time frame and only a handful where the marijuana charge was the only charge. Not looking for cases. A spokesman for the Colorado Judicial Branch said courts have not tried to identify how many pending appeals or so far unappealed cases could be eligible for retroactive relief and the Colorado Attorney General's office plans to appeal to the state Supreme Court, meaning the Court of Appeals ruling could be overturned. Defense Attorney Jeff Gard said there is one way tens of thousands of people could see their marijuana convictions tossed even if they occurred long ago. State law allows people to appeal their convictions at any time if they can show justifiable excuse or excusable neglect. That's exactly what we have here, Gard said. Anybody who was walking down the street didn't know they had the opportunity to appeal until this ruling came out. Attorney Patrick Mulligan, who specializes in appellate law, agreed that defendants could try such an argument. But he said courts usually set the bar extremely high for appeals filed outside the statute of limitations. The case law has made it very, very difficult for defendants to fit within the statutory definition of justifiable excuse or excusable neglect, Mulligan said. The ruling, 
the Colorado Court of Appeals held that those charged with certain marijuana crimes before the Amendment 64 legalization of pop may be able to appeal those penalties. The impact, defense lawyers say more than 10,000 people may be eligible to have their marijuana convictions overturned, but prosecutors say that requires a broader interpretation. Article number 7, Anti-Drug Group, concedes that marijuana legalization is happening in America. Take it away. Anti-Drug Group concedes that marijuana legalization is happening in America. By Shadi Ashtari. Source, The Huffington Post. The CEO of partnership at drugfre.org, best known for its 1980s Your Brain on Drugs ads conceded during an interview with Advertising Age published Monday that the legalization of recreational marijuana in the U.S. is happening. After successful legalization efforts in Colorado and Washington, the 28-year-old group, formerly known as Partnership for a Drug-Free America, has rejected requests to launch a campaign condemning the policy shift, viewing anti-legalization commercials as a futile effort, according to CEO Steve Pagerb. A public service ad that says, By the way, voters of Colorado, you don't know what you are doing. Come on, Pagerb said, adding that pot legalization is happening in America. He said the partnership has shifted toward an educational approach on anti-marijuana advocacy, focusing on parents' roles in preventing young children from accessing pot. They parents expect that it will come with no marketing, all kinds of restrictions and none of this will be exposed to their children, when in fact that is not true, Pagerb told Ad Age. Legalization means that this is now legally protected commercial speech. Washington and Colorado have both enacted laws to keep children away from marijuana. In Colorado, recreational marijuana vendors cannot air ads through television, radio, print or online outlets unless they can determine that no more than 30% of the audience is under the age of 21. Colorado also sets aside 10% of marijuana sales tax income for educational programs outlining the dangers of marijuana use. Under Washington law, zoning requirement also keep marijuana businesses away from schools, parks and playgrounds. In response to Colorado's ad limitations, two publications sued Colorado in federal court in February, arguing that the rules were unjustifiably burdensome and in violation of free speech rights. Pagerb said that while the partnership opposes mass advertising of marijuana, nobody believes that. The advertising bans in place will hold one challenged in court. While marijuana sales have yielded enormous profits for Colorado, a February Quinnipiac University poll found that 51% of Colorado voters thought marijuana legalization has harmed the state's image. 58% said they support legalization nonetheless. 20 states and Washington, D.C., have legalized medical marijuana. All right, listeners, that's all I have for this episode. Till next episode, have a good day, good night, good week, bye-bye. We pollinated your minds. Now, go pollinate the world.